And believe me, a lot of the Cranbrook projects I did were failures, and you don't know them because I don't show them. But, but there, there was humiliation in that at the time. But then you realize it's, it, it definitely made me stronger. You're listening to episode two of Fail Hard, a by design podcast that explores the relationship between fear, failure, and creativity. Sponsored by Adobe. I'm your host, Will Hall. You know, when I started this podcast, I really had two goals in mind. The first is obvious, failure. We're going to explore and demystify fear and failure because I know that they are critical if you want to make anything great. But the other goal is perhaps a little bit more underhanded. That goal was simply to use this platform as a clever ploy, if you will, to get to speak to some of my design heroes. And today's guest fits that bill to a T. We're going to be speaking with graphic designer and educator Martin Vineski. If you're unfamiliar with Martin and his work, check out his website, appetiteengineers.com, or perhaps his Instagram, Martin Vineski. Or better yet, pick up his monograph called It's Beautiful Then Gone. It's one of my favorite design monographs. In addition to having amazing and beautiful work, it's also insightful and poignant, just like our conversation. Okay, well, where shall I begin? What would you like me to... <laughs> yeah, I'd love for you to talk to me about when you decided to go back to Cranbrook for grad school. Sure. Well, that actually is maybe a, one of the best examples of the fear of failure. The willingness to go back to school. Um, before that, I was, you know, I had an okay career. I wasn't doing anything that I cared about. Uh, to be honest, I was mainly I was a designer within a um, uh, a marketing company, so marketing always came first, and design was way down on the totem pole. And I was doing kind of schlocky ads, coupons, that kind of thing, uh, very everyday banal work. And it was the kind of thing that when I would go to a party and someone asked me what I did, I was kind of embarrassed. You know, I, and and the, the other thing that happened is that um, just throughout the day, I was an incessant clock watcher. And it was like the day from nine to five would be interminable. You know, gosh, Martin, that really resonates with me because isn't it so true? We've all had those jobs that are widget cranking hourly jobs where you, you know, an hour is just measured in dog years. But a shift happens when you find something that is resonant with you. Your perception of time totally changes. Instead of watching the clock and waiting for the day to be over, there aren't enough hours in the day. I find that I'm always up against it, you know? Oh, and there still aren't. There's To this day, time just flies by. And I have so many projects, so many things that I want to do. It's It completely turned it upside down. Yeah, totally. I mean... So, okay, so there you are. You're in your hourly soul-sucking job that we've all experienced in some form or another. And then what? You know, what sort of punctured your autopilot and made you explore something new? I, I just thought there's got to be something more, right? So at the same time that I was doing this kind of dreadful design, uh, dreadful but, you know, necessary within the world of stuff, uh, I, other things started to bubble up around me. I was seeing work by other people and uh, uh, just around the margins. And I thought, boy, I'd like to do that. 
But there was no way. You know, when you're doing one kind of work, you can't just magically turn yourself into a creative visual formalist who can invent new things. Now, I didn't know that exactly at the time, but I quickly found out it was this impossible gap. And the only way to get there to me was to go back to school, uh, to kind of reinvent myself. And in order to do that, actually, I had to take night classes for a year uh, at UC Santa Cruz. I drove down there in the evenings, went to the class and then came home, did the homework and then had to go to work the next day just because I actually and I had never uh, studied graphic design uh, academically. Uh, I was an art major and I just kind of learned design on my own. But I realized that in order to put a portfolio together to get to grad school, I'm going to have to know how to do how to use grids and uh, more about type and, and, and not so intuitive. So I did that. And then the idea of going back to school and, and, and to me, the importance of in person, the fact that I had to, I was living in San Francisco. I had to, you know, leave my apartment, pack everything, move to Michigan, and then cross a threshold, physically cross a threshold from comfort to discomfort, from knowing to not knowing. And that is one of the hardest thresholds to cross. Thresholds. That word has so many amazing connotations, doesn't it? There's a sense of a rite of passage, a line in the sand that says, before you crossed, you were X, but on the other side, you've been transformed, changed into something other. Usually a higher calling or a better version of yourself. But to cross those lines requires courage. You're going from the comfort of the known, even if that known is boring and maybe not inspiring, into the chaos and uncertainty of a potential future. Every creative professional that I've been inspired by and that I've spoken to, this theme has emerged. That comfort is the enemy in a sense. And that the only way to really grow is to constantly redefine ourselves and establish a new standard of being. So there you are. You've crossed that threshold and you've plunged into that world of uncertainty at Cranbrook. Talk to me about some of the things that you learned there. You know, what emerged and sort of bubbled up to the top? At Cranbrook, it was, it's kind of an unusual uh, uh, setup in that you don't, we have a few assignments just to get us on track, but most of the two years is we come up with our own projects. In some ways, we set our own expectations and we learn to be critical, all of, all of those things, right? So, but that was, um, that was all new to me. The idea that work, that the work you do can have a personal resonance, absolutely new to me. The fact that I could use my own photography, that I could use all of the things around me, I could use the way I see things as part of my work, it just blew me away uh, that, that this way of working could even exist. And so it was this massive learning, you know, a, a massive input of ideas and then a massive output of work. And I was, um, I was really uh, uh, productive, incessantly so, but that's because that's what I was doing there, right? I just couldn't stop because I wanted to squeeze everything out of it that I could. But it really was the first place where I understood the dangers of failure 
and also the fact that that if you fall and and believe me, a lot of the Cranbrook projects I did were failures, and you don't know them because I don't show them. But but there there was humiliation in that at the time. But then you realize it's it it definitely made me stronger. Uh, it really when when I was harshly critiqued. I paid attention to that very carefully, and a lot of the things that were told me during the harshest critiques are things I still think about today, you know, 20 years later, and I bring to my students. And every aspect of it uh, is still uh, uh, lives in me and is still really uh, critical to everything I do. Yeah, it does seem like those lessons, they just kind of last a lifetime. I know that's true for me as well. There are critiques that I had my junior year that I still think about to this day, you know, 20 years later. That so resonates with me as well. Um, so now that you, you know, you, you went to Cranbrook, you've, you've taken these new lessons, and I assume, you know, you try to then get back into the professional world. Uh, can you speak to me about how you reacclimated yourself to that in professional environment, how you sort of integrated, I guess you could say, these lessons learned? You know, what was that like? Did you just start your uh, studio or? Okay. <laughs> Interesting story. Glad you asked. Um, <laughs> That's why I'm here, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, the, my whole point of, of going back to school, if you recall, was that I just wanted to cross that, that gap to get to the other side. And all I wanted was a job at one of the many cool uh, design firms in San Francisco. I came back here and I had a whole new portfolio and I just wanted to be an employee. I didn't had no desire to have my own business. I was terrified of that. My dad had his own business and it was, it was kind of a nightmare. And so I, I really didn't want any of that responsibility. I didn't want to have to find clients. I didn't want to do any of that. I just wanted to work at a place that I respected. So when I came back, I sent my portfolio out to all these people. Uh, this was still pre-internet for the most part. So this was 93. So you had to make slides and, and or drop off your portfolio, which was all printed out. And I got zero takers. Because the so the what what happened? <laughs> this is my my supposition of what what had happened, is that I went from doing someone who was strictly an order taker, although had a very banal uh, uh, portfolio, to someone whose work was so personal and so individual and and I guess confident in its own world, that what design firm would want to take on someone like that? Design firms don't need to hire people who have their own vision because the person in charge of the firm has their own vision already. They need someone who they can mold. And I think they saw, because I was an older individual, I didn't just come out of, I mean, I came out of school, but I went back to school as an older student. So why would they take someone who is older, who probably was going to be stubborn, is going to be demanding, has their whole own visual vocabulary? And so I kind of, the pendulum swung too far in the other direction, right? It's like, oh, man. Yeah, man, I can imagine it would have been so disheartening, right? I mean, you've done these thresholds, if you will, and now you've ventured out, you've created your own vocabulary, so to speak, and it's just not resonant. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, I, 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 
where do you go from there? You know, I think this is in some ways the the downside of crossing those thresholds that there is potential failure. And so here you are with a portfolio of work that's not resonant. What how did you continue to press forward? Speak magazine came along, which is what started everything uh uh into like it became a vehicle that allowed me to put a lot of the kinds of things I was doing and thinking about into its pages. But that was the beginning, and it wasn't necessarily well-received at the beginning, at least not by, you know, I just wanted to use that as a vehicle to get more, to work at another design firm. I still didn't want my own business. But eventually with Speak, um, we thought it best that um, we work separately. I was working in, Dan Rolleri is the publisher, uh, I was working in his space, and it was getting more and more difficult uh, so I just moved back home. Then, um, the weirdest thing ever happened. I started to, I, I got contacted by a person who was working with Reebok, who was working on this large, the super show, which is in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, is this massive, uh, athletic wear and gear show that happens every year. And Reebok was working on a new booth and they wanted to do something very, different, right? Very hip at the time. This was 90, oh, 96, I think, 96 or 97. Uh, and so I just, I had no, I mean, I had never done a trade booth. I had never done large graphics or anything. So I just put a bunch of copies of Speak Magazine in an envelope and, and send it off figuring, well, they're going to see that that's all I have. But I kept making the shorter and shorter short list which was so weird because it's like, and I was up against like firms that put together big presentations and I, and, and clearly they wanted someone from the outside. They wanted someone doing this very weird work. Uh, and ultimately I won, which was like, <laughs> but the catch was, the catch was in order to get this contract, cause this was a big contract. This was a lot of money. I could not be working from a home address. I had to have a real office. I had to have a real business. And so I scrambled. And I'd already been kind of batting around this Appetite Engineers company. I would already like started looking at a logo and things. But boy, within like, like two weeks, I had to find a space, move into that space, outfit it with desks and, and back then a fax machine and computers and everything, all this stuff. So I had to like suddenly be my own boss, right? And have my own company like instantly, which was, oh man, that was just such a shock. This is another one of those themes I've heard time and time again, is that when you create something new, there's inevitably going to be this moment where you haven't found your footing yet. The failure there doesn't necessarily mean that the approach is wrong. It just hasn't found its right setting. I love how Martin just continued to make. He continued to live and build that world. And as a result, that world started to create its own gravitational pull that drew clients towards him and built a studio almost overnight, almost by accident. You know, when you think about a career in the beginning that was maybe a little lackluster, crossing the threshold to go back to school 
Having crit sometimes it didn't work, but allowed you to get stronger and build your conviction in your work. Then graduating, having those moments of failure, if you will, not landing a job, continuing to just make and make and make and make, and then ultimately building out a body of work that even then wasn't necessarily well-received. There's a lot of failure in that line of events. But on the other side of all of that is something that is unique, beautiful, and I think amazing. You know, Martin, a couple of years ago, I was asked to give a lecture at the Kansas City Art Institute. Great campus. Uh, I really loved my time there. But I think I was kind of hot on your heels uh, because there up front, there was a a wall of photographs that you had pinned up maybe a month or so before. Uh, And it was part of a new body of work you call the new... The new machinery. Right, the new machinery. And uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, they're literally photographs, physical photographs that are pinned on a wall. And the thing that struck me about them beyond the fact that, yes, of course, it's beautiful, but that it seemed like such an exercise in process of pure restraint. There were photographs pinned only at 90 degree angles, and you start at one end of the wall and then you end up at the other. And it doesn't seem like there's a any premeditation there. You allow the work to emerge uh, sort of as it wants. Um, and as I've looked now on your Instagram and have seen more expressions of this body of work, I'd love to hear how you sort of have landed here and what you're learning from this new process and, and body of work. It seems to be entirely about balancing structure and freedom. Well, um, uh, I think you're you're definitely right as far as the relationship between structure and freedom, and it's always that balance. That I, I think that's true for any project, right? Some, like a book design, which I primarily do, there's a lot of structure in place already, right? There's certain given, certain understandings, and then you have a, a very narrow playground to kind of work in, and sometimes even that can't go very far. And in a sense, this other work that I do was an antidote to that because most of my work is in book design. So this became a a much more freeing experience, but it all happened gradually. I didn't sit down and say, this is now the process I'm going to do. And it began with, well, as you may know, I don't know that um, in my the studio that I had, which I had until a couple of years ago, I covered the walls with photographs and 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 visual stimulation because that's that's just the kind of space I like to be in, right? All of that was just for myself, and I and the the pictures were all kind of gridded that way. Uh, in a structure, and they were all just with push pins into uh, a material that was on the wall, and that was all fine. But it was John Sueda, of all people. John Sueda, by the way, is a mutual friend of ours. Who, um, he was curating a show, uh, an actual exhibition of design work, and he came to my studio to look at what I might have to contribute to it. Mm. And just jokingly, uh, said it would be kind of fun to put one of your walls in the gallery. Well, that's where it all began. And I made all new work for that. And so here's a, here's another daring, I guess daring for me, is that A, I had never shown my photography uh, on its own for its own sake. It's always been within a design project. Mm. I've right. never had my work in a gallery, the photography, especially in a gallery space like that. And then what I decided to do was to actually just shoot hundreds and hundreds of photographs and then put the thing together in the gallery. Mm-hmm. Meaning 
there was a good chance it was going to fail. Right. Because yeah, I've right. never done this before. I'd never done this with other people watching me. <laughs> right. Right. And so it just became a process. It turned out I was very happy with the results, but I might not have been. Right. And I understood that very well. And I didn't have much time to go back to the drawing board. You know, it, it was like do or die. And so I just did it. And there was a real exhilaration in that. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time I kind of worked with a kind of audience right around me. And I actually responded well to it. I didn't know if I would or not. I had mm. never done that before. So it is uh, uh, from from there that led to the machinery projects because it's basically the same process. I take pictures of objects first, and this is the thing. Uh, uh, as I'm I'm moving more into photography, which is where the new machinery comes in, and we we can talk about that too about that idea mm. of kind of shifting. Uh, disciplines in a way or or conjoining disciplines uh, but it it's a whole new you know when you move into something like photography there are a whole new set of criteria a whole new history that you have to start looking at and respecting and then a whole new set of of critics and critiques that you kind of have to and that whole idea of the humility I had to do all over again uh, I could have pushed my weight around and say, I'm a designer who does photography and I'm a known designer and therefore, you know, get into some gallery somewhere. Somehow I didn't want to do that. I wanted to really learn uh, uh, about the world of photography. And so as I made these things, I just made them on my own. I just started to put things together and it's intuition, but intuition that came from lots and lots of practice which is another thing that's hard to tell students that you can work intuitively, but that doesn't mean it's good. That only means that is just a process, but, but intuition requires a whole lot of background knowledge, background practice. When you look at, I, I tell them like when you look at the Dadaists that just tear paper up and drop it on the ground, you understand that they're already coming in as artists. They already have an aesthetic. They already have that kind of taste, if you want to call it that, but a whole visual sense. And so, and they probably dropped those things 30 times before they found one that they thought was visually compelling. So I understood that even though I was working intuitively, I had to keep working at it. I had to keep studying it and say what feels wrong or what feels too safe, right? What feels like I'm just repeating myself, uh, and I always like to be not only on the edge of, of, uh, of control and, and lack of control, right. Of structure and, and freedom. But I also always want to be unsure whether what I'm doing is good or not. Right. I mean, in some ways that's the problem with data in my mind, you know, it validates what's already existed and tends to perpetuate <laughs> your past in a sense is perpetuated into your future. You're validated by what you've already done. Something's good. It's because it's familiar and it's familiar because it's already been done. And because it's already been done, often that means it's not remarkable. Uh, and, you know, I think that's actually a problem as I think about design education, because designers are being taught to basically trace design patterns and templates. And yes, of course, that's valuable, but we're sort of that's coming at the cost yeah, yeah. of venturing out and creating something new beyond that threshold of the familiar. If you know for sure that what you're doing is good, you are probably repeating a former uh, a success. 
I, I think that always being on that edge means you're always moving it somewhere. And it just forces you to stay insecure. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Which is not, not a place that most people want to be, right? Totally. But I kind of feel there's something exciting about that. Uh, the, the fact that I'm doing something new, I don't know how it's going to be received, but I have to learn to develop, uh, you know, not just a thick hide, but also the willingness to take critique, right? Always through all of this. I just love how at every phase in Martin's career, he has embraced the unknown with bravery, (laughs) with iteration. He's not been afraid to fail. And when those failures inevitably have happened, he continued to press forward and he's created a world that is now uniquely his own. I found our conversation to be immensely inspiring and I'm so grateful for our time together. If you'd like to find out more about Martin, of course, check out his website, appetiteengineers.com, his Instagram, Martin Vineski, or pick up his monograph, It's Beautiful Then Gone. This podcast is sponsored by Adobe. Everything associated with this show is made possible by the Creative Cloud. From our social posts using Photoshop and Illustrator, to our trailers using After Effects, to the literal recording of my voice right now using Audition, the Creative Cloud allows us to seamlessly move from one idea to the next. Thank you, Adobe. I'd also like to remind you to check out AmericaByDesignTV.com. There you can see where the latest episode is being shown in your area, as well as find other ways to participate with the By Design world. If you have any suggestions for the show, feel free to reach out to me on Instagram, willhall.co, and you can slide my DMs and we can have a conversation from there. Otherwise, I'll see you next week. Thanks. Thanks.